Good morning, downers and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're going to bring you uh, three books, three authors uh, that will be, I would say, a, a prime resource for cooking and baking hacks that you should have in your kitchen. First up. Yeah, and kind of, kind of takes it from the beginning to the end of the meal, right? Yeah, I guess so. So we Go start ahead. out with Heritage Baking. It's Ellen King's. She's the head baker. And I'll say that her bread is enough to make you want to move to Illinois. <laughs> Although it must be pretty cold there right now. I spend a lot of time around food, a lot of time looking at cookbooks. But I want to tell you this one called Heritage Baking has me drooling. Ellen King, um, your bakery is hewn, and it's in Illinois? Yes, that's right, Evanston, Illinois. Evanston, okay. That's near where your friend lives. Who? Your friend who was married to the to the Nobel Prize winner. Oh, right. She lives in Evanston. Yeah, she, my friend was um, widowed her her. Late husband was a um, had a Nobel Prize in economics. And oh wow! We get lots of pictures of the lake. <laughs> She's right on the yeah. lake at a condo. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Beautiful. It is. So, but anyhow, tell me how to approach this whole thing to have people explain. There's so much people don't understand about bread because we haven't had, especially let's talk with flours and yeast. And, and we just, uh, we're so used to commercialized bread, by the way, which I, I won't eat. I won't buy a, a loaf of bread in, in a supermarket and, and eat it or eat sandwiches on it or anything. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's interesting because when we opened the bakery um, and started making the bread the way that you see it in the cookbook, people, it, it was like people... I think it's in our DNA. People are like, this bread tastes amazing. This is what I've been missing. And, you know, as we've been open now six years, the thing that, you know, we do a lot of education, and one of the things that really has come out is we've lost the vocabulary of how to speak about grain and wheat. And that was kind of a, a big hole, even for bakers. You know, we talk about different flour, but nobody really knew, like, how it was being milled, where it was, what was being done to it. And... So this book is really honestly meant for everybody that in, that loves bread or loves baking and for people to have a vocabulary of, you know, what what are what kind of flour you should be asking for, you know, why it's so important and we had to kind of start there and um yeah, I never working, even heard of of some of these uh, strains of, of uh, varieties of, of wheat. And, and I thought it was very interesting after I was reading along to realize that they're not to be confused with ancient grains at all. Their heritage is a different terminology. Yeah, exactly. So ancient grains would be really, honestly, einkorn. And that's spelled E-I-N-K-O-R-N. Right. And it's, it's not a corn. People are always like, it's corn? No. no it's no. actually um, a German word that, you know, essentially means, you know, one grain and one, one the great-grandparent of all varieties of wheat. And so, but there's over 40,000 varieties of wheat alone. And and so at our bakery, we do work with, you know, ancient grains like einkorn, and we do work with a little bit of spelt, but really our primary driver is working with different varieties of wheat and, you know, getting access to as many different varieties as we possibly can. Because, I, you know, it's, it's all about bringing back the diversity. So, 
in the book I mentioned, Turkey Red or Red Fife or yes. Rouge de Bordeaux. Yeah, but, that's you know, that special one your friend's growing. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, now, how, and, Ellen, how, yeah. how did these... Ellen. Ellen, how did, how did these hybrids, if you like, how did they come into existence? Did, did somebody breed them? Or did they fall off a tree somewhere? I mean, how, how do they even exist? I mean, that's a good question. It's almost like asking, how do I exist? You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, I feel like the varieties are as complex as people in that, you know, um, there's some varieties like Turkey Red in particular. It was brought over, they trace it back to the 1870s coming from uh, Mennonites fleeing Tsarist Russia, and they settled in Kansas. Yeah, no, and we, didn't, we lived in Kansas City, and I didn't know that we had a, yeah, a Mennonite museum no, no, there. No, they were further out towards the western part of the state. Oh, okay. That's yeah. why, that's why yeah. we didn't see them. Well, yeah. I, you know, if you ever come to Chicago, maybe we all road trip out to that museum, because I haven't gone yet, but it sounds kind of fascinating, maybe a little scary, to go to a turkey red museum. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> but there's, um, there's, you know, there's so many different varieties, and each region was growing different types that worked well in their climate and in their soils. And what happened essentially after, after World War II was um, the mass industrialization of farming where it started being all about the yield and all about yes. uh, commercial growing, meaning you were putting in all these, synthetic and chemical inputs into the soil. And, you know, then probably one of the worst things, another bad thing that happened in 1974, glyphosate was patented, which is Roundup. And that's what they started spraying in all the fields. Oh, and oh dear. Wheat in particular, what conventional farmers do with wheat is two weeks before harvest, they'll spray the crop with uh, glyphosate, which essentially dries it quicker. So you're consuming that when it's getting milled down. Yeah, well, you had and one of your one of your growers who uh, was trying to keep his grand was his children uh, away from. Um, he had cancer of a salivary gland, or all of this was yeah. exposure to chemicals. Yeah, that's actually why I was late calling in because I was at his farm, and for some reason it's a vortex where there's there's no internet, and I lose sense of time. Oh. And we sit and, and we were talking, and he was actually. Um, you know, talking about the different varieties you're going to be planting uh, next year. So um, it's really exciting because farmers that are growing organically and are brought into, um, you know, growing wheat and other small grains organically, they see that they have to continue to come up with uh, growing different varieties so that yeah, they don't I mean, have a crop failure. You, you have to. Oh, I see. So, so, different, so different brands of wheat have different resistances to disease yeah exactly so that's why it's super important that people don't just say oh i only want turkey red it's it's not about the variety it's about finding in your region what's growing and what's what's doing well and then supporting that because one year um you know the the warthog variety could just completely fail and another variety will actually thrive and um come to market so yeah that's very important well, you, you talk about the, the various um, strains of wheat that, that you use. And uh, uh, listeners, I mean, there are things that, that you've never heard of, like turkey, red, um, red fife. Yeah. Yeah, a marquee. What's the marquee? Yes, um, marquee. And, and this is the one that was so interesting because um, you had 
somebody grow it for you, Rouge de Bordeaux. Um, yep. And has anybody heard of any of these? Uh, Sonora. Well, you know, it's just a warthog. I mean, I've never heard of any of those. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know. And then, I mean, the, the ones that you are, are working with, the farmers you were working with, uh, would not be able to grow um, the strains that they're working with, would not be grown in the Pacific Northwest where you worked for a while. Yeah, you know, and I was just out in Seattle last week, and they they do have where they're growing red fife or turkey red and then a, a bunch of other varieties. Yeah. But each variety that will grow in that region, it takes on different characteristics. So kind of, you know, like the terroir, like you yeah. have in wine, it does apply to the wheat as well. Yeah, I thought that was yeah, so it, funny about yeah, the it, cinnamon. Yeah, it's really funny. I, I spent a year, I guess, traveling back and forth between Pittsburgh and the Pacific Northwest, specifically Washington State University. So, ah. so I so I drove from Spokane, Washington, to Pullman, Washington, through every season of the year, and and it was quite amazing. In the win in the winter time, it was all white. In the springtime, when they were planting, it was all black because the soil is black. And the, and then in in the uh, in the spring and summertime, it was all green. As, as far yeah, as as far as the eye could see, beautiful, isn't it? it it's like the it's quite amazing, like crazy palette of colors. Well, you, you have the and, issue, and you're saying, hold on, and you're saying those farmers out there, they could grow these different varieties if they wanted to. No, they are, different. you know, they. Oh, they are. Yeah, okay. they. Yep, and they're, you know, Washington State. There's a bread lab, the bread lab out there, which is, you know, I mean, um, the work Steve Jones. I mean, he's he's pretty much the the man that. What's, I mean, exposed, it, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Steve Jones. And Steve Jones. he, he, um, I, I saw him speak at a conference four years ago and that's where I was first exposed to, um, you know, really understanding the depth of all the varieties of wheat. I mean, he's a man that has pushed this movement forward. Yeah, but you said, gadgets. though, you said, though, that the expression of, it varies with the terroir, right? Yeah. It, so, like a red fife or the turkey red that's growing in um, in Illinois, it'll be different than what's being grown. The, it'll have different characteristics than if it's grown in eastern Washington. Now, and now, I think, yeah. Now, how how does that affect you as the baker? So, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where I was just, I did a class actually out in, I went to culinary school in Seattle and I, I did a class there for 24 people and I was able to get access to two varieties. That I got access to the red fife that was grown out there, and then I got access to uh, magic skagit is what they call it, another variety magic I'd never skagit. worked with. Oh. Yeah, and it, it worked. It's why the cookbook really talks about kind of what you do when you approach a flower that you've never worked with before. And one of the things you do is, especially with bread, you hold back water a little bit until you kind of know how it absorbs. It depends on how it's milled. And obviously, you don't know the flavor until really you bake it. And uh, so there's like some common common ways to approach using varieties from around the country. And um, and it's holding back water is the biggest key. And, you know, seeing how it reacts and after it's done its auto leave. Um, and the, the bread we made in uh, Seattle from the class, it was delicious. It tasted honestly very different. It, it, I want to say it was a little more buttery without having adding butter, 
and maybe not smoother, but gentler. I guess it was a gentler, whereas the red spice that we've been working with, it might be a little bit more flavor. Now, first, everybody has to worry about the wheat and the proportions, particularly the water and the salt. And, of course, uh, it should go without saying that um, basically you need a, a um, uh, you need to weigh it. You have to have a scale, not depend on cups and things like that. Uh, there, you have to absorb all of that, uh, and and then you also next have to deal with the milling, and and you favor the stone round milling, but um, you could mill at home in small quantities, you say, which is better, although I can't envision doing this all myself. Um, and then on top of that, then you have to worry about the um, the, the starter. Um, I, I always get a kick out of hearing bakers talk about the starter, about feeding it. It's like a pet. Yeah. <laughs> do you catch yeah, wild? Do you catch wild uh, yeast and things? Well, you know that that's another thing that's really kind of regional with um, different flavors that all different yeast strains that all take root. Yeah, you treat it like your pet, and honestly, it, <laughs> it's a relationship that you're developing. And easiest pet I've ever had, but you really do, you know, get attached to it and. I've never named mine. I know people ask me if I have a name. I, I know I, I don't oh, know why. Oh, no, they named it? Yeah. You mean yeah, like they, they call it Betty or something? Yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll come up with a name. <laughs> and uh, we just call it the starter. And, but you um, have great tips about this, though, because I always worried about it. When I used to make yogurt, I used to worry about when I went away, keeping it alive, you know. And, um, yeah. And I had, I had disasters with that. But you have little tricks for... Um, it, like, I, I thought the thing with the microwave was brilliant, by the way, um, which is about temperature for rum. But about how you feed it, and then you put it in the refrigerator to rest while you go away. And if you're going to be gone longer than a week, then you you leave it there longer and then you come back and, and there's a little ritual you do to get it going again and it's, it lasts for a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, you know, I, a lot of people get really, probably the biggest question I ever got was, what do you do when you go away? And um, so for me personally too, having been, you know, a home baker, that was always something I worried about. So I really wanted people to feel comfortable leaving their starter. You don't have to like hire a starter sitter or something. And, <laughs> you know, I... I t- you know, honestly, the only way you'll kill your starter is by throwing it out. We we humans, um, you know, st- the starters have been found, you know, in the in the wood of at archaeological digs. They'll find some yeast strains in wood that, if they hydrate it and put it in the right conditions, it comes back to life. Good. So, grief, huh? yeah. So it's it's one of those things that honestly, the only way for us to really kill it is to throw it out. And wow. If you, if you go away, come back and give yourself two or three days of feeding it, and then it, it should be ready to be used again. You don't so- think that sounds funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking to a baker, so uh, yeah. yeah. But I feel the same way about uh, talking about feeding the little uh, gut microbes and stuff I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So anyhow, you have a perfect formula or uh, recipe for heritage 
bread, the master formula. And then you go on, let's talk about some of these variations. This is when I really started getting, I mean, I really want some of these things right now. <laughs> Are you sure you can't get me some? I mean, really. I um, might be able to ship you something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us about some of the variations you have in this book. They're really the wonderful types of um, breads. Yeah, so... You have a country loaf. Yeah, so we start with the country, and that one, honestly, I uh, when people are starting out, I tell them to just work on mastering that because that's where you're going to start seeing how you're improving. If you do the same recipe a few times, you'll all, you'll start making um, improvements, and your your taste buds will start becoming a little bit more refined with knowing what you should look for. So, and if you know the country bread, then you can make like the cheddar bread or cranberry no, walnut. And the pictures show that you have this crisp crunch out exterior crust and then you have all these air hole filled interiors oh they're gorgeous uh well we had a great photographer john lee he was uh i mean he he yeah the fact that you get that from the picture is uh just a, a testament to his talent because he was he was amazing to work with and um and so yeah we have a bunch of different you know once you've mastered the country then you go on to our whole wheat that is uh, essentially you could do it 100% where it's 100% whole wheat bread uh, and, and any variety that you get access to, that's a great one to use for um, testing, you know, in your region what kind of different wheat you get access to. Um, yeah, that's yeah, a great one to use. Of course, that's uh, I don't even think we could get into an explanation of the um, what happens with milling and the, the difference between whole wheat and not whole wheat and I mean, it becomes very technical, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. We tried to not be uh, too technical. I mean, we had to at some point because it's important for people to understand. But the basic idea is a whole wheat, it is 100%. It has everything in from the wheat berry milled down without any sifting happening. And then if you want something that has a little bit of the bran and germ, we call that like our sifted flour. So it can be any amount of bran or germ sifted out. It just gives you a little bit of a lighter bread. It's all still stone milled, which is very important. Well, you know, I mean, th this is an endless conversation, to tell you the truth, because we haven't even <laughs> talked about the um, uh, celiac stuff and the um, gluten intolerance and 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 why and how this is better. And uh, I want this Bostock stuff, whatever it is. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want this potato and rosemary bread. <laughs> I you have to come on. visit us. I know this is true. <laughs> and then you also include um, sweets, sweetbreads, lemon pound cake. You have muffins, scones. Yeah, your biscotti looks look divine. Uh, Parmesan bacon biscuit. I mean, they're just fabulous. I think you you have something here. <laughs> I think Thank you have a you. lot here. <laughs> well, when you come, we'll do a, a whole tasting. You can come taste everything when you visit your friend in Evanston. Hey, that's a thought. I hadn't even thought about that. Come visit Bev. And, and do you do tastings at the bakery? We, you know, we do. We like to have, especially if people come visit us from a from away. We definitely um, like to make them feel welcome and try and have them taste as much as they can while they're here. I'll be darned. Well, Ellen King, you really that uh, you've turned your life into an inspiration, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, this book is an inspiration. Heritage baking. I don't pretend that I'm going to tackle this. You say 
producing this bread is a two-day venture. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and for me, who doesn't bake at all, it really isn't monumental for me to even consider it. But people who are interested should get this book, even if you want to read it and know what to look for when you're approaching buying bread or you know anything having to do with um, a, a dough. This this is the book for you, Heritage Baking, Ellen King. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope to meet you sometime soon. Oh, that would be wonderful. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Sweetheart, we should have noted that your your friend Bev lives in lives in Evanston. I wonder if she I wonder if she shops at Hewn Bakery. Oh, I don't know. But you never, you never, you never can tell. Sure huh? does. Yeah, there you go. We'll have to pass that along. <laughs> And uh, anyway, we'll just take a short break and we'll be right back, so don't go away. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest, Andrea Chessman, has some good news for you. It's called Fat is Back. <laughs> so her book, The, the Fat Kitchen, uh, tells you how you can go about making your food flakier, crispier, and tastier than ever with the addition of F-A-T. And, and you'll bet she knows that nursery rhyme, right? Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his <laughs> wife could eat more lean, and so betwixt them both, you see, they licked the platter clean. 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 And uh, our, our son didn't like flab. Because neither his grandmother's like flab. <laughs> Never didn't understand it, but it was all the more for us. Anyway, here's a saga of fat. Andrea Chessman, I'm with you. <laughs> Uh, the Fat Kitchen is your latest book, uh, among many others you've written, and I think animal fats are fabulous. Yes, that is exactly why I wrote the book because they just animal fats just give such great results in the kitchen. Well, now I, I I will say up front that there is no way in the world that we're going to cover this book entirely because you have so much information in it. Um, this is a lot of work you put into this book. Well, I think I needed to um, refer to the fact that a lot of people are scared of animal fats, and I don't think that it is necessary to be scared of animal fats at all. I think the science that linked animal fats to heart disease was quite flawed, and I talk about the chemistry of fat so that people um, can hopefully feel more comfortable about cooking with them. Yeah, so when you do this cookbook, it it starts out as sort of a a kitchen manual, uh, and and then you conclude it with great recipes, Um, but you explain things a lot of people um, don't understand about fat. 
about animal fats. It's not you're not saying that just in general animal fats are good. You're saying that there are things to look out for with animal fats when you're buying it. Um, you're talking about the chemistry of it. Uh, you're talking about how to cook with it. Um, you, you say things about uh, what kind of fats to eliminate. And something that I think, I mean, to avoid, such as the um, uh, the uh, feedlot animals and so forth, who are generally sick. But tell us a little bit more. And I mean, I'm just outlining this to give you a, an armature for you to tell us what you want to tell us. Well, I think I think the important takeaway about um, animal fats is that they have been demonized as um, saturated fats and that are totally bad for you, when in fact um, lard, for example, is half saturated fat, and the other half is mainly monounsaturated fat, which is the type of fat um, that um, olive oil is mostly composed of. So if you look at fats, um, it's not just something is all saturated fat or something is all unmonosaturated fat. They're all a blend of these types of fats. And so um, something like chicken fat is only 30% saturated fat. So it isn't the just the, the thing that's going to block your arteries, which is sort of the way we've been raised to think of it. And then there's a whole question of whether there's any connection whatsoever between heart disease and consuming animal fats. But there is more and more evidence that suggests that polyunsaturated fats, like corn oil, soybean oil, um, they contribute to inflammatory diseases, which are, you know, are, are the, the, are commonplace in our um, American life, like heart disease, like diabetes. There's all sorts of chronic diseases associated with inflammation. So I think the dietary uh, advice just keeps changing. But what we know is human beings evolved eating animal fats, and they did not evolve eating polyunsaturated fats because um, such fats weren't invented until the early 1900s. Yeah, you have a section on the uh, development of Crisco, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, they they really did a, a bang up marketing, marketing job. job. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to contribute something here because <laughs> only because I want to get it off my chest, so my so my wife won't be on on me. And you're just saying it's all right to eat fat. <laughs> Fit, fits right in there. But but my my mother used to keep not not in the refrigerator, mind you. She used to keep the drippings from last week's roast. So she could use it for this week's Yorkshire pudding. Yes. And, and, but if you got hungry during the week, mum would always fix you a slice of bread and dripping. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now she, pa- she passed at age 95 <laughs> with, 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 with slightly, uh, I guess she had a little bit of arteriosclerosis. But yeah. And, uh, well, I uh, think that, that um, 
that everything should be done in moderation. Yes. I'm not saying that you should live on drippings, but I don't think some drippings harm anyone. Well, no, but I think that, like, historically, uh, um, our modern diet is more centered on um, on animals, period, so that that has to figure into the equation about how much animal fat you use in, in uh, the kitchen and cooking, right? Um, I, I would guess so, but um, I, I think that um, people are really finding that sugar is the problem. I think so, too. Sugar is the problem. Yeah. Now, did, did we talk about this thing called trans fats? We she has in her book. We were talking about polyunsaturated and saturated. Is, is trans fat not good? I suspect trans fats have been banned from <laughs> okay, our they're, they're really good supply as of um, January 2018. But the problem is that bakery goods made with um, hydrogenated fats which are the source of the trans fats, stay fresher on the shelf longer, which is why we can have Twinkies that last um, forever. Well, there's so, nothing in Twinkies that's even a, a, a food. It's all chemicals. Yeah, did you, did you, see, right. the, did you see the book about that, that analyzed what's in Twinkies? Uh, you have a book about Twinkies. Yeah, somebody, somebody, yeah. Wrote, somebody wrote a book, and there's, there's absolutely nothing nutritious in Twinkies. Right. But they do stay fresh for a long time. Oh, that's, that's, so the that's food helpful, manufacturers right? had to come up with something that replaces the hydrogenated fats. And so they created um, something, a process called interesterification, <laughs> which, um, which they are now using, applying to fats that they use to help bakery goods stay fresh longer, but they have not been required to uh, prove its safety for humans. And here's a molecule that's never been um, produced before, and suddenly it's become something that is not labeled yet in our food supply if you buy packaged cookies and, and bakery goods. So it'll be about 60 years before they figure out <laughs> that it's not good for us. And in the meantime, it will have caused harm mm-hmm. or maybe will have caused harm. And in the meantime, sit sit down with a glass of your favorite uh, hydrogenated corn syrup, <laughs> high, fru- right. high fructose corn syrup, and, you, and you'll, be, you'll be sure to be headed straight to the cemetery. It wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't be wise. No. no. You actually point out something that I wanted to mention is that the more we depend on these seed oils and things like that, um, the more we're contributing to uh, damaging the uh, environment. Yes. um, I understand that there's a real problem with um, sourcing organically raised meats or pasture-raised meats, but they are, the fats from pasture-raised meats are much higher in in nutrition than the ones that come from the factory farms. Oh, yes. And they don't have, they're not loaded with antibiotics if you're a, a, a responsible grower or raiser. 
Right. I want to I want to ask you a question just out, just out of the blue. You might be able to solve one of my great dilemmas. We use a lot of grapeseed oil because people say it has a high boiling point or whatever. Smoke it is. point. But, but how how do you actually make grapeseed oil? I mean, well, there's a grape. I mean, they're, they're such little buggers. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually don't know the process. Oh dear, uh, that was, was I hoping. Uh, but I believe the process involves um, heat and light and chemicals like hexene oh, nice. to bleach it of its flavor because you probably, like most vegetable seeds, the oils that it yields do not taste good. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Olive oil tastes good, but I think it's the exception. And all the others are heavily processed to neutralize the unpleasant flavor and odors. I was just worried about who who's picking who's picking these little grapes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the red of saffron. And are they all on the wrong side yeah. of the Mexican border just now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> no, you you have um, you're going to have to find out. You have this how to render fat, and I mean it is um, a special technique. I mean you can't just just stick it in a in a skillet and turn on the heat. No, you need to do it slowly with low heat. And as the um, most fat has, um, either it has collagen in it or it has little bits of flesh in it, or in the case of chicken, it has a little skin on it. Um, and you want to, as the fat melts, you want to take it off, ladle it off, strain it off, um, so that the what's left behind doesn't brown. And as it browns, that's when it, it gives flavor to the fat. So when I meet people who say, oh, I rendered my lard and it tasted too porky to me, <laughs> I know that they have either used high heat or they have um, they have let the, the fat brown on the cracklings and that, um, that gave it that flavor. And now we... Peter decided one year that he was going to cook outside on the grill a goose. And let me tell you, did I get fat from that? <laughs> I didn't have to do anything to it. It just I did. ripped out. I, I did. I cooked a goose on Christmas. You did. But, I mean, before you did that, dear, I poked holes all over it and oh, steamed yeah, it. Oh, no, I understand. <laughs> I, I, I was like Tiny Tim saying, God bless us one and all, cooking, cooking, a, cooking a goose for Christmas because they didn't have turkeys in Charles Dickens' day. <laughs> Right now, a fat, a fat that my mother used to like to make pie uh, crusts is is a suet. Yes, and and, and, she, and she used to just sort of mash it in there like she would have done butter if she was using butter instead of suet. Yes, I um, I always I am I always render the suet before I use it because it does have a lot of, um, it has collagen in it, and it looks like um, transparent pieces of paper in it. Mm. And I think that the suet that you usually buy in England is somehow processed or pelletized. Um, I have to go to England and, and really... Well, yeah, I mean, my mother-in-law, of course, Peter's whole family's in England, 
um, she wanted me to make a particular pie that she liked that I made. And I, I was just totally, um, this was, you know, way back when. And I, my mother had always made pies with Crisco. <laughs> I had never seen a, a piece of lard, you know, to use in pie crust before, but that's all they had. But oh, it was. Well, but lard's really good. It's really it's super in, in pie crust. Just, just yeah, like, I know. It's like suet. And it comes in particularly interesting looking sort of waxed paper packages. In the here, before you get tangled up in this, oh, there's a little up. there's a little boxed item in this book called "Why Not Use Supermarket Lard." Go ahead. <laughs> um, the supermarket lard has preservatives in it, and it's made from uh, factory raised uh, uh, pigs. <laughs> and okay, well, we don't want. We sure don't want that. And if it's Self-stable, it's probably not good for you. Right. They put all kinds so, of stuff in that. Yeah. So it's easy to find um, rendered lard and um, other fats online. Yeah, goose fat. There are those people in, where is it they raise the, the geese where we, they sent us. Oh, South, South Dakota. Yeah, they sent us um, a couple of geese prepared, ready to pop in the oven, um, and, and a, th- a three-pound package of, of goose, goose fat, which I couldn't wow. imagine ever using in my whole life, so I gave it to a, fr- a friend chef of ours, and he well, was thrilled. He was thrilled. I would have been thrilled. <laughs> um, yes, you can, and, and so I try and buy a goose around this time of year because they're hard to source. Yeah, and render some goose fat to have for um, for cooking with. It's great on potatoes. It's great with popcorn. Oh yes, um, and it makes good pastry also. Uh-huh. I've never um, used it for now, pastry. Now, now duck yeah. duck duck fat makes good fries. Yeah, she has that in, but, in this book but, too. But, but so does tallow. In fact, she has that too. Yes, yeah. all of the animal fats um, are good for frying because. When you fry anything, it um, as you when you lift it out of the fat, there's still a little bit clinging to it, and an animal fat will harden at room temperature and form a shell that's crispy, whereas the vegetable oils will remain liquid exactly. and will slowly seep into the whatever it is that you've cooked, like eggplant, for example. Like eggplant, for example. Yeah. So um, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah started on December 2nd. And um, in the old country, the Jews used to raise geese, and they would um, render the fat for making their Hanukkah latkes and then hope to have enough fat remaining through the winter and, in, and until the holiday of Passover when they would put it in their matzo balls. Yeah, my, my, my best friend Aviva's father used to keep a, a container right next to the stove and he would put all of his chicken fat in there until it was time to make soup or to make, you know, it's, well, actually the, the person who wrote the introduction to your book wrote a whole, uh, Michael Ruman wrote a whole book called Schmaltz, didn't he? 
Yes. I think, I think it's actually called For the Love of Small. Oh, okay. Because uh, he loves it so much. But the, um, the chicken fat, all of the poultry fats, enhance the flavor of whatever you cook with them. So if you were um, just sautéing some vegetables uh, for your dinner, if you did it in uh, any poultry fat instead of um, oil, it would have just a little bit nicer flavor. It's it's very elusive, but it's very profound. And um, when I go to talk to people about this book, I always bring uh, duck fat popcorn. Oh, wonderful. Because it tastes just like popcorn should, and without the butter. It's just perfect. Oh, that sounds and it never, wonderful. It never burns. Uh, so I'm, it there's a lot of advantages to working with animal fats. Now, I I have to ask you this before I let you go is I have never heard of bear fat. Do you tell me April Bloomfield likes it? Yeah, she um there her butcher shop's closed by the way. I up a picture or a story about her cooking with um with bear fat, but I live in Vermont and I have a son who's a hunter, and this year he actually um, got a bear, and we rendered really? that, and it has this nutty aroma, and I think this this bear lived on berries and nuts, I see. and his fat was mostly neutral but slightly nutty, and oh I wouldn't recommend rendering the fat of. Um, a bear who lives at the town dump. <laughs> but <laughs> if they're deep in the woods and they've lived on, on acorns and berries, I think that it's quite delicious. Can you and shoot bears? And the meat was surprisingly good, too. Yeah, I was going to say, what? how many pounds of, was this bear? It was a young male, and it um, it yielded about, it was about 150 pounds and yielded about 75 pounds of meat. Great, boy! Boy, I wish I, I wish I'd known you were going to cook some bear steaks. I would have been right. I would have been right at your door. Oh dear! Well, I'm, I'm glad we, we got this book. And anybody who really wants to pursue this, the Fat Kitchen, and it tells you how to render, cure, and cook with lard, tallow, and poultry fat. And the author is Andrea Chessman, who is um, a, a long-standing food writer and an explorer. I'd say you're an explorer, Andrea, exploring ideas and issues in the culinary field. Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for talking to us, Andrea. Well, thank you. Okay, so... um, Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And next we have Odette Williams, uh, who provides us with the sweet spot in the uh, in your day and, and in the program? And you'll you'll know you'll know when you listen to the interview that we saved the best to last. 
Well, she has more excuses for making a cake and uh, than you would ever think of. And it's it's a wonderful book. It's creative. It's mix and match. And she makes it all seem so easy. It's called Simple Cake. So listen to Odette Williams. Odette Williams, you must be a charming person because your recipes are in the book called Simple Cake. Um, and, and, and the recipes and your comments on the recipes are filled with personality. So I'm assuming, like the book, you're charming. Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful way to start this interview. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. No, you are um, a transplanted uh, Australian. Uh, which mm-hmm. always endears you to me or anybody to me because I, um, I love Australia. And um, you're living, you said you moved from Bondi to Brooklyn, which is a great I way know. of putting it. <laughs> Polar opposites. I went from living on a beach to living in a big city. Yeah. And in the, in the, in the town, in Brownstone, isn't it a picture yeah. of your house in here? Yeah, we we live in a brownstone in Brooklyn that we renovated a couple of years back. So that um, houses all the children. Yeah, <laughs> so. you have four. Yeah, I have four. I have um, two uh, big girls from my husband's first marriage, Dixie and Matilda, and then we added another two, Opal and Ned. So it's uh, yeah, it's quite the household. So people, and you say you you load it with them. Um friends and relatives coming and going all the time as well? Oh, I love that. I, I, I've always been a big fan of like an open door policy and I feel very happy when my house is full with people. My husband jokes that I'm, I'm afraid of being alone with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we live pretty similarly. I mean, we you, you have no idea who's going to come and stay and how long. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, my, my husband jokes because we have guests that sometimes stay for six months. <laughs> that must be an Australian thing as well. <laughs> Could be. Well, now you, in your introduction, you say you, you have this love of cake and for, for various reasons. Explain why you are so devoted to cakes. You know, it's so interesting because I, I think... Even as a young girl, there was a there was a very influential book in my childhood called the Australian Women's Weekly Kids Birthday Cake Book, and I it was just this cherished book in our household and in many households uh, in Australia. And and every time you had a birthday, you would go to this cake book and you would choose a cake that you loved, and you know the parents would attempt to make it and and. I think that, like, I I was so endeared by this process of having this book that meant so much to you and this joy of, like, choosing a cake and then the celebratory nature of it. Um, that that re- really inspired me to create Simple Cake. And so I... Um, and then the other, the other major key part to me being endeared to cake was when I was growing up in Australia, there was absolutely nothing sweet to eat in the house. So sometimes I would come home after school and I would just make up a cake batter. And sometimes I didn't even bake the cake. I would just, <laughs> I would just, I would just eat the batter. And I, I say in the book, I got so good at it, I would be able to like scale the cake. 
accordingly to how much batter I wanted (laughs) that afternoon. Well, now, you wrote a definitive, certainly definitive book about cake, but that's not what you do full-time. No, I mean, the um, I I started a business when my daughter was younger, um, and it, it, I kind of call it the accidental business because my friend had come to visit us, and she had bought Opal a um, little apron set, and it was kind of like a Chinese, you know, vinyl, cheesy number, but she adored it, and and I remember thinking that's just such a wonderful gift, and that's such like a keepsake. And I thought that would be amazing if that just had a better design and if it was in cotton and you know something simple. And so I went about designing that, and then I did a prototype, and then I took it to the Brooklyn Flea just to kind of see what the reaction would be, and it was very positive. And then I ended up doing. Uh, some trade shows, and it got picked up by, you know, some really wonderful brands. And But before I knew it, I was selling kids' apron sets. And it was just in the time when my children were young and they were pottering around and I would be cooking or baking, and um, and the apron set was just like a lovely addition to, like, our lives at that point. And we were also getting invited to all these children's birthday parties and and I was always on the hunt for, like, what is a great gift to oh, give someone? Great, yeah. That would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, know, so, you have some really good information in this book. I mean, I liked your advice. It's straightforward, down-to-earth, the kinds of information that somebody attempting to bake a cake needs. It's called Advice from This Home Baker to Another. And, I mean, some of these things were eye-opening. I had really not thought about it. Uh, yeah. So, do you want yeah. to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think that I—I I mean, I really just wanted with this book to take any fear that there might be out of baking, because I think that—I mean, I just know even a lot of friends of mine are intimidated by what is baking, and these are really simple recipes. And I kind of what I wanted to do was just break down what are the steps and once you know them then then you're off to the races you can pull off these cakes very easily and it's just little sound bites like line your pan you know um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> even just as simple as read the recipe <laughs> you know, Pete, peter was kind of giggling over this you have a whole page on tips for using flour and i explained to him that it's probably the most People most trespass the weighing of flour, and and uh, that's why their cakes don't turn out. Well, other people, other people yeah. told us the same thing too. Yeah. It's a, it's really it's really important. Your yours is a particularly interesting because it's on a sort of a, a, a what 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 color what color would you say that page is? Is it the color of flour? Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. not, not yeah, it's flour. kind of it's kind of like a it is a good observation. It's like a toasted flour color. Toasted flour, that's that would be it. Okay. Um, um, but but the idea really is with with the book is if they have those tips there, they can troubleshoot. But also by narrowing down what the core recipes are. So if you've got ten cakes, fifteen toppings, and then you've kind of got infinite possibilities and. 
once you can do one of these cakes, then you can pretty much do all of them. And then you have this amazing arsenal just right at your hands. Um, and they're kind of cakes that can be cranked out, you know, like under an hour. They're not too demanding. You've got usually the ingredients in your pantry. Um, so they're, um, they're very kind of hardworking, simple recipes. Now, what, what, what are some of your favorites? Oh, well, I, I really love the chocolate cake, and that's usually what I steer people to first because it's so simple. You don't need any beaters or fancy equipment. If you've got two bowls and a whisk or a wooden spoon, you can pull it off. It's pretty much bulletproof. It stays fresh for, like, days, even if it lasts that long. It never lasts that long in my household, but it can. And it's one of those chocolate cakes that is, Beautiful and dark, but not too rich. So it's like, it's just like, everyone loves it. And it's so moist that you can just simply dust it with confectioners and you don't even have to worry about icing if you're feeling lazy that day. It's just a lovely cake. It's really, it's a, it's a winner. Well, now I, I said you have a lot of personality in, in your recipes. Um, they, they come out a lot in this section called cake-worthy moments. Explain that to us. Well, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about my relationship with cake is I know that cakes are traditionally associated with birthdays, but for me, cake is much more integrated in my life in many, many occasions outside of those celebrations. So, And I try to just illustrate that with the cake-worthy moments, like Maybe there's the day where you're, like, feeling a little morose and you just need a pick-me-up, and so I called it the self-care cake. Or maybe there's a cake I've got in there called the bribery cake, which is when you either need to bribe yourself or someone else you love to get across the finish line, so you bake them a cake, you know, as inspiration or motivation. Um, or there's, like, cakes that have been inspired by my travel or... I find that that's when I often do do a lot of baking when I'm on vacation. So I'm just trying to show you the ways that you can mix and match the core cakes with the 15 toppings and what kind of like flavor variations work, but also what kind of times in life that I myself personally bake that you also might enjoy baking these cakes for. I have a feeling that you and Marie Antoinette would get along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'd be firm friends. <laughs> you know, the, you have some kind of, um, what can I call them, kind of kooky cakes in here. <laughs> like this, I, I, the winter wonderland cake. I don't know, I don't understand that one at all. <laughs> oh, I know, look, that is the, that is the one cake in the book that is the, it's the homage to that Australian Women's Weekly Kids' Birthday Cake book. Um, and it's definitely for children's birthday parties. It's kind of got a very playful, magical feel to it. And those cakes were, you know, around a theme. And since moving to North America, I, I was always kind of like very besotted when the snow came as an Australian. I was like, oh, this is so magical. <laughs> and then I thought, how can how can I put this into like a cake, you know, like a winter wonderland cake? And 
And it's like, it's one of those cases, and I will confess this to the, the listeners at home, it probably isn't the most simplest of cakes to put together. Oh, but my, I do, no. <laughs> I, I do confess that in the instructions, and you'll definitely be doing high fives all around when you finish it. But it's one of those cakes that becomes uh, a very memorable moment for children when they see their parent making this cake for them and pulling it off, and they're like super excited when, I mean, my kids were like bursting at the seams when I would make them this cake, you know, and they wanted to be involved and their friends were, you know, looking on and and so it just becomes like almost folklore, that kind of a cake. Um, yeah. So, But then in the book too, it's like very, very simple cakes and I do say like, any of those 10 core recipes can just be simply dusted with confectioner's sugar and they're good to go. You know, you don't, don't need to do anything special just to have a yummy cake. Now, well, what, what about the pavlova recipe? Well, I was we just should, about to should, go to that, but should, first I had a question. Okay, hold on. A I want to know who one. is this hunky guy <laughs> sitting in front of this cake after pavlova? <laughs> oh, my God, my husband is going to love you. I know, I mean, I'm sure he will. He's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> That's my husband, Nick, and um, and we met in a bookstore actually back in Sydney, and so that's how I ended up in New York. And he's from Australia as well, but has lived in America a very long time. And his favorite, you know, dessert is pavlova. And so, mine too, I, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It's just so delicious. Um, and so when I was choosing the 10 cakes, I know that meringue could be not officially considered cake, but my editor and I decided, you know what, it is one I of those very simple recipes that well, really is wonderful. And, and when it's Nick's birthday, I make him a pavlova because that's his favorite. And so I call it Big Daddy's Pav. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, but I don't see any passion fruit here. I mean, I don't think you can have a pavlova without passion fruit. I know. Look, and it's it's a crime that there's no passion fruit on that. But when we shot the cookbook, the berries were just so sensational. Um, we had to use those from the farm stand. But, you, you know, like, honestly, the great thing about pavlova is you can essentially put exactly. any kind of fruit on top and it'll shine and be delicious. You know, the, uh, when I first saw the price of passion fruit in the United States, I couldn't believe it. I, everybody I had a couple of vines around the porch, you know, in, in Australia. I know, I know. Well, growing up, they used to just fall in our backyard. Yeah, now sure. it's like, I think it's like $4 a passion fruit here in I mean, Brooklyn. Isn't that disgusting? Okay, yeah. well, well my, my, my cousin Richard lives in northern Tasmania. And uh, one, 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 of, one of his early crops... In his little farmlet was passion fruit, and he used to sell them for a quarter apiece. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, let's be honest about this pavlova, by the way. And and then the vines got a disease. Oh, yeah, that's right. He had to rip them all out. He ripped them all out. Yeah. He now does... he does organic avocados now, and they sell out too. But back to this pavlova, I think I explained to you before that when I lived in Australia, I made, I used Barry's recipe, Barry Phelan's pavlova recipe, and it always worked. When I came back to the United States, 
it never worked. And every place I lived, it got worse. I mean, <laughs> to the point where, as I told you, I served it for lunch, and one of the uh, luncheon guests said that she never had a dessert like this where she had to use a steak knife and a fork. My husband used to make a chewy pav. <laughs> yeah, well, he, it's very uh, temperamental, isn't it, Meringue? Look, you know what? It is, and which is why in the book, I on that particular recipe, I really broke down some tips that I think are kind of key in making sure you get a great meringue because it is one of those very, very simple recipes but that can sometimes just be a little prickly. Um, and it's just very, very simple things. Like if it's like a super humid day out, I don't make meringue that day. It's just, you know, it, it hates humidity. Uh, unless you're going to put on the air conditioner and just wipe out the moisture in the, in the air. Um, <laughs> or... You know, you don't want your oven too hot because you don't want you don't want a, a brown meringue. You want a you know still looking nice and whitish. Um, you're gonna have that little crackle look on it too for a pot. Yeah, yeah. It, and and I think once you know these, once you're familiar with the recipe, then then you know where it could go wrong. Um, and then once you do know that, it's actually easy. Um, um, yeah, so I mean, I think whether it's an individual meringue or a big meringue, um, yeah, they're just a really, it's a wonderful recipe to have when you either having friends over, you know, or if you do want to make a birthday cake, um, because they're always a hit. Right. Well, I lost heart, but I'll give it one more shot with your recipe. Oh, you need to call, you, I'll be on the, I'll be on the meringue hotline. Okay. <laughs> oh, Dad, it was delightful talking to you. And the book, as I said, is uh, charming and, and informative. Again, it's uh, Odette Williams and it's Simple Cake. All you need to keep your friends and family in cake. And it's a winner. Oh, thank you so much. So we hope you'll agree that we didn't leave anything out of today's program. No. A little bit of something program. for everybody, and you'll hope. Nice books. Yeah, good. and we, we hope you'll join us again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.